So it's, it's good to be back with you all today. Uh, of course, last week um, was Easter Sunday. <laughs> the pastor wasn't at church. Um, yeah, I thought about sending you a picture. We were with you all just uh, virtually. We were watching online, um, so I was kicked back in a recliner, um, kind of listening to what was going on. Um, and we sincerely missed you all last week since we weren't able to be here. Last, last thing I want to do is miss Easter Sunday with the church, um, but that's what happened. So um, I, I did want to commend everyone who was a part of that service last week. I thought it went really, really well. I was really encouraged by it. I thought things went um, very, very well hearing the eyewitness accounts of, of those who encountered the resurrected Jesus. I thought that was really cool. Um, and, and, mo- and I learned something new, actually. I learned something new last week as I was sitting in the chair. Um, most of you all probably didn't realize that Alan Yoakum was over 2,000 years old. Did you all realize that? Um, I mean, he doesn't look a day over 1,500, but, um, yeah. <laughs> he says his ears are. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, but on a serious note, I thought, I, I really was encouraged as I listened to that. Um, but something I don't want, I don't want you all to miss is, is this. See, we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the fact that people encountered a resurrected Jesus uh, almost 2,000 years ago now, and we think, well, that's really cool, that's a an, that's an really awesome story, and it's really powerful, but what I don't want you to miss is, is this, you have an opportunity to encounter the resurrected Jesus. Um, it's not something that just happened 2,000 years ago, and now it's gone, we missed it. You have a chance to encounter a resurrected Jesus to experience his presence in your life. And I'm not talking about some pie-in-the-sky thinking. I'm talking about knowing Jesus, like really knowing him. Um, So you have that opportunity. So please don't miss that, just thinking because Resurrection Sunday's come and gone and that's moved past. Well, no, no, it hasn't. Every day is a Resurrection Sunday. Every day we get to experience the new life in Jesus. Every day we can know that truth. So, um, yes, uh, just, just know that. Um, and obviously, we're getting ready to start something new today. Um, this backdrop, Real Questions, Biblical Answers, is going to be the series we're going to walk through the next few weeks. Um, and this is going to look a little different than what we typically do. Um, so I just want to let you all know what's going to happen the next couple weeks. The reason I wanted to do this, this Real Questions with Biblical Answers, is because I don't think God's scared of your questions. Um, oftentimes we think, well, these are really hard questions, but God doesn't have time for that. God's not intimidated by your questions. He cares about your questions. Um, And I believe he's given us a lot of answers. We just, a lot of times we don't see it, we don't know them, so we just assume, well, God must not have said anything about that. I don't think that's true. That's why we're going to look for biblical answers and do our best to see what God's word says about these really difficult questions we have. Um, Now, I also want to say, the Bible does not, absolutely does not, answer every question we could possibly have. The Bible doesn't. God's far too vast far too vast for him to tell us everything. We couldn't comprehend it even if he did. So the Bible doesn't tell us every, answer every question we have about life, not to mention that's not the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible isn't to answer all of our questions. Instead, the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God's glory through his redemptive plan for humanity. God wants to show how awesome he is, and he does that primarily by showing how he redeems mankind to himself. That's what the Bible's there for. But many of the questions we have are at least indirectly answered in Scripture. A lot of them are. And I don't think we need to be scared of the difficult questions either. I mean, we know that Jesus was raised, right? We know Jesus was raised from the dead. 
He'll tell us what we need when we need to know it. So I don't think we need to be scared of difficult questions. So I would like to explain the process. What happened was I went around and I asked our Sunday school classes to field questions. To field questions. So if you're like, well, are you just going to ask us random questions and have us throw these at you? No, I'm not that brave. Um, So you're not going to get to just ask anything you want right now. Um, I like to prepare. So um, I I asked some of our Sunday school classes to field questions. Um, And some of these are difficult because people have real questions. I was kind of convicted whenever I I heard that Answers in Genesis, the way they designed their Sunday school curriculum was to answer a lot of these questions that that people have. Because what they found is as college students were going off to college and walking away from their faith altogether, they found that the problem wasn't when college students went to college. As a matter of fact, a lot of people had questions early elementary age. Like they were still younger children and they had difficult questions that they weren't finding the answers to. And it's, not, not, to, it's not, not anybody's fault necessarily. Some of these are really hard. I'm not going to pretend that they're always easy. But what they saw was, I have a question. People around me are saying, well, we don't have an answer to that. So these kids are looking elsewhere. People are looking elsewhere. So I don't want to shy away from the difficult questions that people have. So that's how I went about it. I, I asked our Sunday school classes to field these questions, and boy, we've got some doozies. Um, so we're going to work through these the next few weeks and see how it goes. Um, and I'm going to give you a, a, a quick heads up. Today's, uh, today's question is, um, it's difficult. And it's actually very emotional. Um, it is definitely an emotional issue. And my attempt is going to be to exhibit as much grace and compassion as possible as we deal with a difficult topic. So understand that. But I also don't want to shy away from a question simply because it's difficult. Okay? It is emotional, Yes. But I can tell you with absolute certainty there is healing found in Jesus. That's where the healing is, okay? Second thing I want to tell you before we ever ask the question is that this question, the answer to it, it's not a logical issue. Um, some people have said that there's a, there's a logic issue here, and it, there's not. There is not a logical issue. There is a very strong emotional issue. Um, so I want you to understand that. So what I hope what I can do today is I present today's question and answer. I hope I can do so in a way that is both logically cogent and emotionally sensitive. So please bear with me. Um, you extend me some grace and I'll do my best to be sensitive about this also. Okay. So y'all scared yet? A little bit. Good. Cause it's difficult. Um, the question today, um, which by the way, was not from an adult class. I just want to tell you, this is from, this was not an adult class that asked this question, and it's a good one. Uh, the question was, why did David and Bathsheba's baby die? Um, many of you are familiar with the story, um, familiar with the passage out of Second Samuel. Um, in Second Samuel chapter 11, we see that David, he's the king over Israel, he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, which is not uncommon, that's where she would bathe. He sees her there, he lusts after her, and he, desire, he desires for her problem is that she was a married woman. She's a married woman. But David sends for her anyway, and he sleeps with her. And this results in a pregnancy. So now David's got a big problem. The king of Israel, one who's representing God's chosen people, this guy has just committed a grievous sin. And he knows it. And he knows it. So what's he supposed to do? Well, we know the answer is he probably should have owned up to it, right? But he doesn't. Instead, what David does, what David does is he tries to cover it up. First, he tries to make it look like the baby belongs to Uriah. 
Bathsheba's husband. Um, but Uriah, Uriah is a military man, and he's loyal to his troops in the field. And he refuses to enjoy certain pleasures while his troops are out in the field. So that doesn't work. So he tries something else. Instead of trying to cover up the pregnancy and make it look like Uriah's baby, he writes a letter to have Uriah placed on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Where the fighting's the fiercest. You know what's going to happen to Uriah then? Uriah's probably going to die. David is sending him to his death. Essentially murdering, guaranteeing he's going to be killed. And, of course, that's what happens. Uriah dies. And David marries Bathsheba, brings her in, and pretends that everything is fine, right? Things are going pretty smooth for a minute until he's confronted by this prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes in and says, yeah, I know what's happening. He does so through a parable, but he tells him, look, we know what's happening. It's not a secret. God's told us what's going on. (laughs) And as he's confronted with this, David admits his guilt. He admits his guilt. And it's here that Nathan actually answers this question. Why did... David and Bathsheba's baby die? Uh, Nathan answers the question right here in 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. It says, And the Lord has taken away your sin. Talking to David. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Now, that's difficult. But that is the answer. That's why. It says right there, Because you treated the Lord with such contempt, the the child had to die. Now, What I would like to do as we walk through this a little bit today is I would like to broaden this question because, again, I feel the weight, even as I'm saying this, I can feel the weight of it in the room. Um, I I don't think this is an easy question, and I don't think it's one that we should just be flipping about. Um, So what I would like to do is broaden this question and try to provide some hope for people. I would like to broaden this question and address a bigger question that we rarely hear answered, at least not biblically, um, and that is this. Why do children, sometimes even infants, suffer the consequences of sin, namely death? Why do infants suffer that consequence? Um, And again, please understand my intent. I really hope that you can extend me some grace here as as I explain my intentions. My intention is not to dredge up hurts or be insensitive, but my, my intention is to deal with a very real question people have. This question has caused people to walk away from the Christian faith altogether. It has. So I don't want to hide from it because I don't think God is intimidated by a difficult question. So I don't want to hide from it because people outside the church will give an answer if we don't. So let's do our best to see what God's word says. And the way I'd like to do that is by by showing you two two truths from God's word and then answering two follow-up questions. Okay, the first first of these truths is that death is a clear result of sin. All death is a clear result of sin. All of them. Um, We saw it here in David and Bathsheba's case. There was a very specific sin there. Um, But if we go all the way back to the beginning, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. He's told. Like, Adam is told here in the garden, death is a result of your disobedience. It says, if you disobey, you will suffer the consequences, and you, that is death. So God warns that disobedience leads to death. Now, biblical scholars, they debate over what it means here to, to die, like what is being said. Well, here's my opinion. I believe that what, 
what, what is meant here in Genesis 2.16 is that physical, spiritual, and eternal death all result from disobedience and rebellion against God. Uh, death, in general, is a result of disobedience. Now, because the man and the woman rebelled against God, they wind up being banished from the garden, um, and they're unable to eat from the tree of life. Completely unable to, completely separated from the tree of life. And they are now destined to die a physical death. Now, this teaching isn't isolated in Genesis 2.16. Paul teach something, teaches something similar over in Romans chapter 5. Um, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Okay, again, hear that. Death entered the world through sin. Okay? In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. If you jump to verse 18, it says, So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Um, what I believe Paul is arguing here is that all of humanity, from Adam to us and even to future generations, all people are guilty of sin. All people. Not some people. Not most people. Not just the bad people that we see over there. All people are guilty of sin. And, you know, I thought about diving into this pretty deep and talk about there's, there's different views of headship. How, what does this look like? There's this one camp called federal headship, this other called natural headship. I really don't think it, like, ultimately it doesn't matter. So I decided we're just going to uh, bypass that a little bit because it doesn't make a tremendous difference. Instead, what I want us to see is that Adam, Adam, in some way, he is our representative. He, he was our representative. He was our champion. I mean, all of humanity was there. The entirety of humanity sinned when Adam sinned. Every single one of us. You know where your lineage ultimately traces back to? Adam. All of us in some way, we were in Adam. All of us sinned. And even if you don't want to take that view, then you believe that Adam was certainly your hero. He was humanity's hero. He was the representative and he failed, which brings about consequences for all of us. And that's the way we, we see that all the time. That's the way things often work. Right? Think about David and Goliath. Think about David and Goliath and the way that battle plays out. Okay, you all are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? Yes, no? Yeah, a few of you. That's good. Okay, I'm going to tell you anyway. So Goliath, this Philistine, this Philistine, he comes out day after day. These Philistines are at war with the Israelites. Goliath keeps coming out and he's shouting these insults at the Israelites and just saying basically like, come on, somebody challenge me. Somebody challenge me. He says, send your champion out to represent Israel and I'll fight him. And here's the challenge. I just want to throw this up here. He issues this challenge in 1 Samuel 17, 9. He says, if your champion, if he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Now, he's not talking about a battle between thousands and thousands of people, is he? He's talking about a battle between two men, two people, a champion from each side. He says, send Israel's champion out. And what's the result if the champion wins? The entire nation wins. One person represents the entire nation here in this battle. That's what happens. Of course, we know what happens with David and Goliath. David wins. Israel wins. In the case of Adam, as our champion, he lost. Adam lost. He failed. Which means that even the very, the very best people you know, even the very best people you know will fail because our character and our nature has been corrupted by sin. All of us. Because our champion failed. Now, before you say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> that doesn't sound fair. 
even if I haven't screwed up, you're telling me I'm guilty because my representative failed. And yes, that's what I'm telling you. But before you say that isn't fair, let me tell you two things. First, you would have failed way quicker and way harder than Adam did. Um, uh, If you don't believe me, just think back on your life and you'll see I'm right. Um, If I were in Adam's position, it would have taken me a heartbeat and I would have screwed it up too. Um, I know that I would have been guilty. I know I would have. And just, just in Adam's defense, I just want you to remember that in, in Scripture, there's only one clear sin that Adam ever committed. Can anybody else say that they've only ever committed one clear sin? Um, and I'm, I'm sure Adam sinned more than that. But that's, we have one recorded sin. We're very hard on Adam. I don't know that that's fair. So that's the first thing. We would have failed anyway. Second is that you don't want what's fair. You really don't want what's fair. See, we say, well, it's not fair that Adam, Adam sinned and now we're all guilty. Well, here's the thing. We believe that salvation is found exclusively in Jesus. Exclusively in Jesus. And the only way that happens is whenever God counts Jesus', right, Jesus righteousness as yours. If you got what was fair, you would not be righteous. You would be counted guilty. You don't want what's fair. Okay? So let me just say that. You really don't want what's fair because... Jesus being taking your place, Jesus suffering in your place, that's not fair, but it is good. Okay? So you don't want what's fair. So why do we see death in general in the world? The answer is because of sin. But what about, what about innocent children? Right? That's the question. What about innocent children? Well, second thing I want to show, a second truth I think we see in God's word, is that mankind is born in sin. Mankind is born in sin. See, we have a misguided understanding because we bias the question before it's ever asked. Um, notice I, I framed that question very intentionally saying, why do innocent children suffer? Well, innocent. Well, that assumes that there is such thing as an innocent child. Um, well, let me explain before you throw things at me here. Um, I don't believe that there is such thing as an innocent child. And as a father of four, including a baby boy who's not even two weeks old yet, um, I believe this is difficult to grasp. Um, as a matter of fact, Steph and I were sitting in our living room, and I was telling her what I was talking about. Um, and I said, I don't believe that this boy is innocent. I, I don't believe he is. And that's hard because he seems so sweet. <laughs> Y'all can come see him at 2 o'clock in the morning. He may not be quite as sweet. Um, but the truth is, we think that they are innocent because, well, they don't do much yet. But, and this is coming from somebody who often tells you, if you think your kids are the coolest kids in the world, you're wrong because my kids are cooler than yours. Like, I have the best kids in the world. I, I, I love my kids. My kids are fantastic. I couldn't ask for better kids. My kids are sinful. I, I know they are. I, I know they are. And I, I can prove it to you, as, a, as any of our parents can tell us. Think about your kids. Think about your kids. Do you have to teach them to be selfish? Do you have to teach them that? No, they know how to do that. They know how to be selfish. Do you have to teach your kids to be sneaky? Oh, no. They come by that quite naturally. Oh, yeah. Um, even sometimes, do you have to teach your kids to be dishonest? Oh, no. They figure that out all on their own. They can figure that out. Why? Well, because I believe they're born with a sinful nature. Born that way. So, whenever you tell your kids, don't do, fill in the blank, what's the first thing they're going to do? you've told him not to do. I remember his kids, mom and dad say, hey, don't look in the, don't look in the closet over here. What are we going to do? We're going to look in the closet. Of course we are. You don't have to teach us to do that. You have to teach children to be obedient, not to be disobedient. 
But why is that? And I believe it's because children are naturally sinful. David, King David, the man who said to be after God's own heart, this is clearly a man who God loves and uses in an incredible way. David, here's what he writes in Psalm 51.5. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful. Notice he doesn't say I was, I was, I was like kind of wrong. No, he says I was sinful. I was sinful when, I was con- when my mother conceived me. From the time of conception, he says I was sinful. That's what the Bible says. And that's not an isolated incident. Psalm 58, 3, it says, The wicked, the wicked go astray from the womb. From the womb. Liars wander about from birth. See, even this great king, this great king David, recognizes that he was sinful. Before he ever spoke a word, he was guilty. He recognizes that, which unfortunately means that even children are, sub, or are subject to the consequences of their sinful nature. Now, before... You get too carried away. I have two questions, these two questions I would like to answer real quick, okay? Um, because this is what came to my mind as I was walking through this. And these are difficult, and honestly, I wrestled with these for hours and hours and hours this week. So please don't think that this was something I answered lightly. But here are the questions I'm going to attempt to answer. First, does this mean that every death, even those of young children, are the result of specific sin or sins? Is that what that means? Second question I'm going to do my best to answer is, does that mean that these young children suffer the eternal consequence of sin, namely separation from God forever? Do these children suffer that consequence? Okay. Again, I'm going to do my best to answer those questions, even though I know how difficult this is. Um, and I would like to do that by, by telling you this. God sometimes, God sometimes allows seemingly negative circumstances for his glory and ultimately for our good. God sometimes allows these seemingly negative circumstances for his glory and ultimately for our good. This is the hope of Romans 8.28. This is the hope that we have because of Romans 8.28. We know, it says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And I think whenever Paul writes that all things work together, whenever he says all things, I believe he means all things. Not just most things or seemingly good things. God works all things together for good. And I'm not going to tell you I know how. Because I don't always know how. As a matter of fact, I don't think we're supposed to always know how. But I trust that God is going to work all things together for good. Now, whenever I was considering this question about um, specific sin or sins causing uh, the death of even sometimes young children, the first thing that came to my mind was this account in John chapter 9. John 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says this. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in the case of David and Bathsheba, we know why the baby died, right? Scripture tells us why the baby died. Um, I think that that is an exceptional circumstance. I don't think we always have that. Now, while I do think that Jesus' followers should often, and I mean I think we should often take time to be reflective, to be introspective and, and examine our lives and repent of any known sin... While I do think we should do that, I don't want you to sit there and add unnecessary shame and guilt to your already intense pain. I think that's unwise and unnecessary. See, oftentimes I think what happens, because I've heard this question. People ask, what did I do to make God do this to me? And I know people who have experienced this kind of traumatic loss and they've asked that question. Is this my fault? What did I do that made this happen? Did I cause this to happen to my child? Now, again, the answer according to David and Bathsheba, in their case, it may be yes. However, the question 
that question sounds an awful lot, an awful lot like what the disciples just asked Jesus about the man born blind. Who sinned that caused this to happen? Who did? Whose fault is this? I think it's good that we look at Jesus' response here in John chapter 9, verse 3. It says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. He says it's not, the, it's not the result of any specific sin. While it might be a result of sin in general in the world, it's not like there's some specific sin that caused this. It's not something that his father did or that this man did that caused it to happen. Jesus says that even though there might be suffering in the world because of sin, this affliction is not tied to one or more specific sins. And I believe that the same is true in the case of, loss, in the case of losing children. Sometimes there are circumstances that while they are a result of sin in the world, they're not directly tied to your sin or that of somebody else. I don't believe that's the case. Instead, what we can, we can believe that while not an objectively good thing, God can work even in the midst of your suffering. God can work even in the midst of intense suffering for his glory, which is ultimately our good. And that's what Jesus says is happening here with this man born blind. God's going to work in his life for his glory, which is ultimately for our good. And I think we can trust in that. But I think in order to have that kind of hope, that God's going to work for good, an answer to the second question that I posed a moment ago is helpful. Um, I think it's at least partially contingent upon that. Does the fact that children are born in sin, the fact that they're born sinful, does that mean that they will suffer the eternal consequences of sin, which is separation from God forever? Um, now, here's where I, I struggled this week. Uh, and I struggled and struggled and struggled. And um, the reason I struggled so much is because I thought I had an answer to this question my whole life. I thought I knew an answer to this question my whole life um, until I started meditating on this, this, these first two points this week. And as I started meditating on these, God started challenging my conception a little bit. Started challenging my understanding a little bit. So after spending time in prayer, reading the thoughts of many other scholars, pastors, theologians, and examining the passages that seem pertinent to the question and speaking with my brothers and sisters uh, whom I trust, uh, sometimes to, to the point that they were annoyed, um, here's, here's the conclusion I have to this difficult question. Okay, And here it is. God seems to, at least in some cases, extend grace toward children. God extends grace towards children, okay? And I'll explain why I believe that. There seem to be multiple thoughts um, regarding what happens to infants when they die, okay? And the reason it's so difficult is because the Bible, again, it's not here to tell you everything you could possibly want an answer to. I told you, that's not the intention of the Bible. Um, so it does not directly address this issue, but there seem to be some indications that children hold a very special place with Jesus, I mean, think about what Jesus says about children in Matthew chapter 18, 3. There, he says that one must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then a chapter later in Matthew 19, 14, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these children. Further, after the death of David's son here, David expresses confidence that he will someday be reunited with his son in some way. Over in 2 Samuel 12, 23, he says this. He says, I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. He seems to express some confidence that he will in some way be reunited with his son. Now, with this in mind, I would like to share the three most common evangelical views on this, and then I'll conclude with my, my opinion, and you can take it or leave it, but I'm going to share these views with you, okay? 
The first of these, these common views are that every child who dies in infancy, every child who dies in infancy will instantly be ushered into heaven. That's probably the most common view. This uh, oftentimes, many of you have probably heard of the age of accountability. Um, that's, that's the phrase that's been put along with this view. Um, and it, like I said, it's probably the most common view. And there are many who I deeply respect and appreciate who hold this view. And just to name a few scholars and pastors and theologians who hold this uh, are those like Charles Spurgeon or R.C. Sproul or John Piper. All of them hold this view that those who die in infancy are instantly ushered into heaven in the presence of God. The second view, second common view, is that children of believers are ushered into heaven, but children of non-believers remain, they remain condemned. Um, this is wrapped up hev- heavily in covenant theology, and I don't want to dive too much into that. Um, but while I agree that there are those who are raised often hearing of Jesus and his grace, I think they might be more likely to receive the, receive the good news of Jesus simply because they hear it again and again and again. That's why I tell my children again and again and again, because I want them to hear and receive the good news of Jesus. So I certainly believe that there is some validity to that. But simply looking at Scripture, I don't see where that's the case. Because I also know children of very devout people who have completely and totally walked away and rejected the faith. So do I think it's necessary that a child of a believer is, in, or is automatically redeemed? No, I don't. I don't believe that's the case. So I struggle with that view also. The third view, I'll just have to admit, is incredibly dissatisfying. Um, incredibly dissatisfying. Basically, with those who hold this third view, they say, we just don't know. That's it. We don't have enough information. We're not going to speculate. We don't know. I told you, it's not very satisfying, is it? Um, But that's the third view. Now, I'm confident some of you are going to disagree with me. And that's okay. I still respect you and I still love you. Even if you disrespect me and don't love me anymore. Um, Here's my estimation, given what we do know from Scripture. What we do know from Scripture. Um, I don't believe that Scripture supports an age of accountability view. Um, It's not found in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the term age of accountability wasn't ever used until the 19th century. Um, I don't think that that is a directly biblical concept. So, I don't hold to that. Um, I don't think it explains the covering of a sin nature that we're born with. So, I think it has some pretty major holes. Instead, I, I tend to hold a view that uh, I, I think that most, certainly some infants, are instantly ushered to heaven. Um, I don't believe that we can know with absolute certainty, however, what happens to all infants who die. I don't think we can know with absolute certainty. I don't think the Bible tells us. Um, there's a fantastic article written by a gentleman named Tim Challies that explains this far better than I could. Um, But what I do believe, and I agree with him, I believe that that God somehow gives the gift of faith to some infants. At least some. I I absolutely believe that. For example, consider John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist, before he's ever born, still in the womb, there seems to be faith in John the Baptist. The Spirit works in him and on him to the point where he hears Mary's voice, the mother of his Savior. He hears news of Jesus, and he leaps even in the womb. So there does seem to be some evidence for for the Spirit moving, even in unborn children. So do I believe in infant faith? Uh, Yes, I do. But the truth is that faith in Jesus is the absolute only way to heaven. 
to being made right with God. And I believe that God is able to impart spiritual truth to anyone regardless of their age or cognitive ability. Further, given the long legacies of faith we see spelled out, literally spelled out in the Bible, I think it is very likely the children of believers are redeemed. So, that's my view. So yes, I believe God can communicate divine truth to anyone, even to unborn children. But salvation is always, and I'll say this again, salvation is always by grace through faith in Jesus. Always by faith in Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. Always by faith in Jesus. So, I believe that God seems to extend grace to at least some children. So what? Well, again, I'll tell you, this is, I know, this is a deeply personal and a deeply emotional issue, and I want to encourage you today. Like, I don't want you to leave beat down like we just had to talk about a really difficult thing for like, I don't know, 45 minutes today in church. And it was depressing. I don't want to leave you with that. Instead, I want to offer you some hope. I want to offer you some encouragement. And that's this. God is greater than any circumstance, any circumstance that you or I will ever face. Um, while I, I see the pain, I see the hurt that losing a child might bring, I don't want you to think that God is not present or that he doesn't care. I absolutely believe that there is hope and there is healing in Jesus. And while I'm not confident enough to say that I always know what God does or why God does the things he does, I know this, that his plan, his purposes are always the best. Always. Not sometimes. Always the best. So when we experience loss, even when as glaring as the loss of a child, we can trust that God will work in that for good. I'm not going to pretend to know how, and I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. But I do trust that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Um, even, Even Job. Many of you are familiar with the book of Job. But even Job, who experienced loss far greater than I can understand, at the very end of that book, he concludes this. He concludes with this. He says that he says that God's plan is the best. As he says, surely I spoke about things that did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. Too wondrous for me to know. Even in the midst of your loss, God is working for something that is too wondrous for us to fully comprehend. God is working something for good. So be encouraged that God is good, that God is in control, that God loves you, and that God loves those children who we've lost also. Um, And again, like I said, that hope and that healing from this, where it's found, is nowhere other than Jesus. He has the answers. He has the solutions. He brings hope. He brings healing. So that's where we need to look is to him. Let's pray together. Father, um, first of all, I want to thank you for loving us, um, loving us so immensely, um, loving us so intensely um, that you you gave your son. Um, Father, even those who have experienced this tragic loss of of a child, Lord, it's not like you can't you can't show compassion to them, Lord. You've experienced it. Father, we know that you willingly gave your son for us because you loved us so much and you were working something far greater than what we could see. Um, So, Lord, today I want to praise you and I want to thank you. Um, Father, it would be inappropriate of me to stand here, sit here, talk about the loss of children and and not pray that you would come 
and bring healing as only you can, uh, Father. I can't fathom the pain that that would bring. Um, Lord, but I know that you provide hope. And whenever we come to you and we lay our lives before you, we know that you're not just... You're not just there for the moment of salvation, but you are there to work all things together for good. Lord, so today, I want to just tell you that we trust you, um, that we know that you are good, that we know that you can work even in the midst of searing loss, Lord, but I also pray that you would bring healing as only you can, that you would send the comforter, or that you would send your spirit, and it would just fill those who have dealt with this pain Father, and that you might encourage us as a church, and you might empower us as a church to come alongside brothers and sisters, to love them, to care for them, um, to be there for them. Father, build us together, I ask. Father, but beyond all of those things, we are thankful that there can be hope for, for not just a, an earthly future, but that there's hope for eternity found in Jesus. Not just for us today, but also even for those those children who have been lost. So, Father, give us faith. Give us eyes to see. Um, Just give us the faith to follow you, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.